evidence and answers. What is an enneagram? Is this a tool that will help you discover your true identity, bring life transformation, and a closer walk with God? Many churches are using the Enneagram to help their members transform their lives. But is it a tool that we should be using? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucharin. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today, Pat and his guest, Don Vino, president of Midwest Christian Outreach Incorporated, discuss the worldview and theology behind the Enneagram. Now with part one is our host, Pat. What is an Enneagram? Is this a tool that will help you discover your true identity, bring life transformation and a closer walk to God? Many churches are using the Enneagram to help their members transform their lives. But what is the Enneagram? Is it a tool for life transformation that we should be using? Well, to help us address this issue is Don Vino, president of Midwest Christian Outreach, Inc., a mission to those in the cults and non-Christian religions. So, Don, welcome to Evidence and Answers. I am glad to join you today. I'm glad to make your acquaintance as well. Yes, Don, since uh, this is your first time with us here on Evidence and Answers, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, how you came to Christ, and how you got involved in reaching those in the cults and non-Christian religions. Well, it's the woman God gave me. I mean, that's a simple way to put it. My father was an atheist. I grew up, did not believe in God. I kind of followed his understanding that there is no God. Now, he lived consistently with his understanding. They were divorced when I was an early teen, my mother and father. I met a young lady when I was 15. She was a Christian, not probably as dedicated as she should have been, because she shouldn't have dated me, for sure. (laughs) But, But she did, and I'm glad she did, and we dated three years. What we didn't know is her grandfather had been praying for me from the time we met, that I would become a believer and that I would become a pastor. That was his two dreams dreams for me. Wow. And so we dated three years. We married. We were married three years. Had my son. She had sort of a spiritual reawakening and rededicated her life to Christ, but then became concerned. She's married to an atheist. What is she going to do? So she asked me to read some material, and I agreed because I didn't really think Christians had a reasonable argument for what they believed, but I became persuaded that it was true, and I came and I accepted the Lord. That's a short story. And her grandfather showed up, This so this is six years, and it works now, he'd been praying for me six years, showed up at our next family gathering with a box of Bibles and commentaries and things that pastors would need to sell me on my <laughs> second wow. phase. And Joyce said, she's not going to be a pastor's wife, she doesn't do phonograph and she doesn't play piano, but God, in his infinite wisdom and uncanny sense of humor, had her meet some Jehovah's Witnesses on a bowling league that she just fell in love with. And so she came home and said, I I want to read some of the gospel. I don't really know what they believe, but I know that it's not Christian. So we went to our pastor, asked him. He didn't know what Jehovah's Witnesses believed either. And he gave us a little tract that uh, he got from, uh, I forget where. It had a lot of Bible verses on it. Didn't really explain why they were important. So we were more confused than we were helped by it and started doing what research we could. There were not that many books out there at the time. To reach her friends, that's how we started. After a few years of that, 
part of that process was we opened a pre-recorded helpline and advertised it that Jehovah's Witnesses could call, listen to a brief message, but we wouldn't answer it because they were terrified to watch our trying to catch them doing it. Then we started getting calls about other groups, one of which is Bill Gothard in the Institute in Basic Life Principles. He was very popular among evangelicals, uh, had over two and a half million go through his material, big in homeschooling and other things. And it, initially we thought we were being told that it's a cult holding young women against her will. We uh, started investigating his material and came to realization that he may not be a cult, but what he was teaching was clearly not within the bounds of orthodoxy in certain areas. And so we attempted to meet with him, and he was not really willing. Started writing articles about it as we founded Midwest Christian Outreach. And uh, we did that because we had to answer a big question. And the question was this, if we don't have the integrity to deal with false teaching in the church, don't we give up the right to deal with false teaching outside of the church? I didn't like the answer to that question, but that's what led us to doing what we did next, which is to remain as missionaries to cults and non-Christian religions, but from time to time, if it's serious enough false teaching, we have to address it as well. So we did that with him. We did a book, A Matter of Basic Principles, Bill Gothard and the Christian Life. It happened again in 2000 when Gwen Shamblin was pretty big in the evangelical church, and she denied the Trinity, she denied the deity of Christ, she taught salvation by works, God hates fed people, sort of stuff. After talking with her at some length, we issued a press release, and she went from sending out a thousand cops. In fact, one of the things that helped was after we issued a press release, Christianity Today called her to verify if what we said was true, and her comment to them was, women don't care about doctrine, they just want to lose weight. Hmm. That, yeah, that's pretty powerful. She ended up being essentially ostracized from any evangelical churches at that point. So that's how we got started, and that's what we do. We primarily deal with uh, cults and non-Christian religions. We hang out with Wiccans and Buddhists and Hindus and whoever will talk to us. But occasionally we have to deal with serious false teaching in the church. Yeah, so one of the things you mentioned that uh, I wanted to you to expand on a little bit, that you are an atheist, and you can't, you know, one of the things that led you to faith in Christ is the compelling arguments that Christianity had, the evidences and the reasoned arguments there. A lot of people say, you know, you can't reason people into the kingdom. You just got to love them. It's just a matter of the heart and the Holy Spirit. And that's one of the things that uh, I've been teaching that uh, Norm Geisler used to always say, God doesn't bypass the mind to speak to the heart, that the Holy Spirit uses reasons and evidence. Uh, So talk about that a little bit more? Is it just a matter of the heart? And how did God use reason and the evidence to speak to you? And how does it work with people coming to faith in Christ? That's a really great question. And my friend, uh, the late Dr. Norman Geiser, is certainly an authority, but there is a higher authority who actually speaks to this issue. When asked the question, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind. So the mind is clearly part of the process of belief and coming to the faith. John, in his gospel, says that he wrote these things that you may believe. So he gives information about what is to be believed, and then it is up to us to believe it or not. So the mind must be engaged. For me, it was this. Number one, 
could I know that God doesn't exist? And I can't. I realized I couldn't do that. And so I had to change my view from atheism, God doesn't exist, to agnosticism, I don't know if God exists. I was an ornery atheist initially, I don't know if God exists, and you don't either. To an ordinary atheist, I don't know if God exists, but I'm open to information. So it was a process. The first step of which was, is the Bible fundamentally reliable? That doesn't necessarily mean inspired, but is it reliable? And as I discovered, there is so much evidence that the text we have today is essentially the text that was originally penned in the original writings when it was penned. 99.9% there. Any differences or discrepancies don't affect any major or minor doctrine. So that was really powerful, but it still didn't mean inspired, and it didn't mean Jesus was who he claimed to be. For that was the resurrection, which then persuaded me of two things. The resurrection, there's strong evidence for it. We know what the early Christians believed. We know what they claimed. We know what outside sources, non-Christian, affirmed that they believed and claimed. So they clearly believed in the resurrection. There's strong, strong evidence that the resurrection actually did occur. That's number one. Number two, the one who was resurrected claimed he would resurrect himself and then did. That individual, Jesus Christ, who said he would raise himself from the dead and then did raise himself from the dead, also believed the scriptures were inspired. So now my choice is pretty easy. Do I believe someone living today who denies the Bible is even reliable, or do I believe someone who not only affirms its reliability, but its inspiration, I think, and raise himself from the dead, I think I'll go with him. So it was information. Now, the late Jan Moskowitz, the co-founder of Jews for Jesus, would often come to our apologetics conferences, and I would have him speak, and he would get up, and in a room of 300 apologists, he would say this, I don't like apologists, he would say, because they think if you give a reasonable answer, someone will believe. But faith is an act of the will, not a function of information. So what is he saying? What he's saying is faith is something we choose to exercise. We choose to believe. But it is not devoid of information. It is based on information. So information alone, you're not going to be saved. You have to choose. But it is both. It's an act of the will. It's your heart and it is your mind. Yes, well stated. You know, and also tell us about your ministry to those in the cults and non-Christian religions. Being here in Hawaii, it's very pluralistic. You know, I grew up as a Buddhist, and many huh. people have the impression, well, you can't get a Mormon or Jehovah Witness or a Buddhist or Muslim to come to Christ. You know, they're set in their ways. What do you have to say to that? I have to say, you're right, I can't get anyone to do anything. But that doesn't mean that God can't use me in spite of myself. So it is God who changes a person, it isn't me. We are simply seed planters and waterers, that's what we do. And occasionally, if we're really fortunate, we get to be there when the delivery of the baby comes and they are born again. And I get to be part of that. What I do say, because I, I have something that I call the silver bullet syndrome. I get phone calls and emails every day, someone saying, I have a friend, a relative, a someone I met at work that is a, you know, name it, Jehovah's Witness, a Mormon, a Buddhist, a Hindu, a Wiccan. What verse do I give them to get them out? And I say, there is no verse that gets them out. It just doesn't exist. God uses his word the way he wants. You have to ask a fundamental question. 
why are they what they are? When you ask that question, they will tell you everything you need to know to talk to them about the faith. And it may not have anything to do with Buddhism, for example. Maybe you're asking them to leave their family if they will be ostracized. That's a powerful thing to overcome. Maybe it is because, I don't know, let's say because they want the world to be a most or more peaceful place. Yeah, I, I want the world to be a, a more peaceful place as well. But how does Buddhism offer you that? Well, Buddhism, I had Buddhists tell me, it teaches us to live peacefully. I look at nature and I see it's peaceful and I say, okay, well, let me ask you a question. Maybe you can help me understand this because I look at nature too. I watch these nature films, Wild Planet and so forth. And what I see is nature doesn't teach me to be peaceful. It teaches me that it is a vicious world that we live in. We have a lion chasing a gazelle to eat it for lunch, and we have the monkeys hiding in the trees because they don't want to be dessert. How do we find this peace? Now they have to start grappling with how the world really is, and we can move them to the gospel one step at a time. Yes, very well stated. You can tell, folks, that Don has a lot of experience in evangelism to those in the cults and the different world religions. Now, Don, we're talking about the Enneagram today. First of all, what is an Enneagram and what caused you to take uh, interest in this subject? Well, the Enneagram just superficially is just a geometric figure. It's a circle with three sort of triangles in it, one triangle and two others that are triangles but with open ends that intersect with each other. These three figures inside the circle intersect at nine points on the circle. That is what the Enneagram is. That's all it is. It isn't any more or less than that. Now, many today within the evangelical church are under the impression that it's a spiritual tool. And if you ask the, quote, Enneagram masters if it's a psychological tool, most of them will say no, because it really doesn't qualify as a psychological tool. And it is to tell you things about your personality to get you to an understanding of yourself and God. So it is a spiritual tool, but is it a Christian tool? It really was developed in uh, around uh, 1915 by a mystic by the name of George Gurdjieff. Now, when he drew it, he claimed that it explained everything in the cosmos and he used numbers to do that. And the numbers are one through nine in, in different arrangements. And it would explain everything in the whole cosmos according to him. But he's a mystic, so that's what he's trying to do. More recently, it has been claimed that it's a spiritual tool that goes back to the fourth century. It isn't. It didn't exist before 1915. Nobody used it as a spiritual tool, even in 1915. It was used for other kinds of things. So that's its origins. It's not ancient, it's not Christian, it has no roots in the Christian church anywhere. And we talk about that in our book, Richard Rohr and the Enneagram Secret. We also have, if they go to our YouTube channel, a series of nine of ten, actually ten workshops that we did in an online conference dealing with various aspects of the Enneagram. And we have several, Dr. Doug Grothheis, Dr. Ron Cherry, Dr. Ron Huggins, and others that deal with specific areas of the Enneagram and its claims. So it moved kind of from there in 1915, just hung around really in mystic and occult circles at that point. Wasn't even thought of by Christians at all. Around the 1960s, you have a young guy by the name of Oscar Achazo, 
Bolivian born, New Ager, we would call him today, who kind of picked it up and started dabbling with it. And the claim is that he was in contact with two spirit beings and was in a seven-day trance with these spirit beings who then revealed information to him. And he applied that information to ego fixations. So it wasn't a personality tool per se, even with him. He had a uh, school in Chile, the Eureka School. It was kind of uh, looking for kind of ascending to godhood, if you will. And so he did that. And one of his students by the name of Claudio Naranjo joined up and he picked up the Enneagram. Again, this is 1960s. He was uh, kind of playing with it. He was a psychologist. He's one of the grandfathers of the psychedelic movement, better spirituality through better drugs. That's where he was at. And he, through automatic writing, received all of the enneotypes as we have them today. So imagine this. Everything we have of the Enneagram comes from mystics and occultists. This was passed on from him to a Roman Catholic by the name of Bob Oakes in the early 1970s. And Bob Oakes then took it and taught it to some Roman Catholics, one of which was Mitch Pacwa. Another one was Richard Rohr. Now, Mitch Pacwa is kind of interesting because as he was working with Enneagram over several years, he kind of used it, didn't use it, went back to it. He noticed that every time he took the Enneagram test, he had a different personality come up. And it bothered him. So he started doing research on it. And in 1992, he came out with a book called Catholics and the New Age, How Good People Are Being Drawn Into Jungian Psychology, the Enneagram, and the Age of Aquarius. So he's warning Roman Catholics in 1992 of the occult origins of the Enneagram. At the same time, Richard Rohr publishes a book on the Enneagram and Christianity, pro-Enneagram. So you have two conflicting views already in the Roman Catholic Church. And several ministries within the Roman Catholic Church wrote exposing Richard Rohr as teaching occultism in the church. Now, I have to tell you, my wife and I read the book. We knew Mitch Pacwa. We thought it was an interesting read. We read it. We went, okay, Catholics tend toward mysticism anyway. We'll never have this in the evangelical church. We didn't really bother about it too much until 2016. Now, Marcia Montenegro, I don't know if you've had her on yet yes. or not, but Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's one of our associates, let's say. We work together really well. Question Answers and for the New Age is very sharp. She started writing articles in 2011 because it was kind of starting to come into the progressive church a little bit. But just one or two, not a lot. Until 2016, InterVarsity Press published a book by two disciples of Richard Rohr, Suzanne Stabile and Ian Cron, called The Road Back to You. So the title tells you where it's taking you, back to you. It was a huge success. In fact, at this point, it has sold 750,000 copies. Mm. So this is very, very popular. And we started looking at it, writing about it to kind of warn people. We really didn't think it was going to become as big as it did because it's absolutely heretical. I mean, the basic idea of the Enneagram is this. Number one, it has a theology. And in that theology, in fact, as we deal with questions of what groups are teaching, we have six categories we look at. What do they say about the nature of God? What do they say about the nature of man? What do they say about the nature of sin? What do they say about the nature of the resurrection? What do they say about the nature of salvation and about inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture? 
So that tells us then, are they truly a Christian group or something else? And I have to tell you, the Enneagram fails on all six categories. Why is it in churches? Because it's popular. It's sort of a Gnostic idea, if you think about it. It gives you secret information that isn't in the Bible about yourself and about God that you can't find in Scripture anywhere. That's Gnosticism, you know, short and sweet. So, so 2016, 2017, another disciple of uh, Richard Rohr's, by the name of Christopher Wertz, came out with his book, The Sacred Enneagram. So now we have the road back to you, and it's a sacred road back to you. Tells you a lot. In 2018, Suzanne Seville comes out with a second book, The Path Between Us. So you have a, The Road Back to You, it's a sacred road, and it's a path between us. In 2019, Beth McCord came out with a nine-volume series for Thomas Nelson Publishers. Between just these three publishers, there are over a million copies out there today being used by Christians across the, across the world, really. We're getting calls from New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, the UK. It's pretty much infiltrated in the church everywhere. There's over 140 plus titles. And what do they say about the nature of God? Do you want me to go on with that, or do you have a different question to stop me with? Yeah, let's first go with, and we'll get to those. Expand a little bit more on what is the purpose of the Enneagram? You say here in your book, it's for life transformation. What's wrong with that? Well, there's great things about life transformation, but should the life transformation be the Holy Spirit working in you. I mean, Scripture says an interesting thing. He that has begun a good work in you will continue it until the day of Christ Jesus. So I often have to tell believers that you're going to be transformed. You can do it easy or you can do it hard, but you're going to do it because God is doing it to you, not you yourself. That's number one. Number two, there's so much in the Bible about life and faith and practice our relationship with God, that we almost don't need anything external from the Bible. If we just spend time in the Scriptures, we'll have what we need and to serve one another. But okay, let's say that it could be helpful. What is Enneagram actually doing? Because it's making spiritual claims. It isn't making psychological claims. The spiritual claims are this. One, you're not a sinner. I think that's a problem. When you do your test and find out what number you are. That number is not what type of person you are. In fact, Richard Rohr, Suzanne Stabile, Christopher Wertz, all say this is not about what kind of a person you are. This is about your path to God. Why do you need a path to God? Because you have never been separated from God. You're not a sinner. You have always been with God. You have created a false self that thinks you're separated from God. And the purpose of the Enneagram, the spiritual purpose, is to help you divest yourself of your false beliefs about yourself and reclaim and reconnect with the God that you have always been with. That's pretty serious. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of our former New Agers are out there sitting, well, that's that's kind of a New Age teaching. Uh, Those familiar with Gnosticism go, well, that sounds kind of Gnostic there. It is. That's exactly what it is. In fact, the god of the Enneagram is panentheism. Now, panentheism is a big word people might get confused about. It basically means this, that God is bigger than the cosmos, but the cosmos is his body. 
In fact, Richard Rohr says the first incarnation of the Christ is the cosmos. This is the incarnation of God. And then Jesus, who was born, you know, 2,000 years ago, became the Christ. He wasn't the Christ. He became the Christ by virtue of being part of the creation. And so he's not really any more God than you and I are God. Again, that's very, very problematic. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. We have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. So if you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or even schedule an apologetics conference at your location, give him a call in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Be sure to use our search engine for available resources. We have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio free to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the Air, we rely on generous financial support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to partner with us, head on over to our website, that's evidenceandanswers.org, and you may do so right there online. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Hey, 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 hey.